Well, I'd be grateful if you'd turn with me to Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 31. And we'll read to the end of the chapter. Romans eight thirty-one. And before we do that, let's pray. pray. Lord, we again seek your help in understanding that uh, our minds may be occupied with your word and may you grant us the help by your spirit to understand it in Jesus' name. Amen. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sorrow? It is written, your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we were noting last time, uh, last week, at this point Paul is reaching something of a climax uh, at the end of chapter 8. Max, in fact, to the gospel, so, uh, the, the, the letter so far. Um, and the wonderful truth is that, uh, that's established at the beginning uh, of the letter is that we can indeed be counted as righteous by God uh, through Jesus Christ, not by our good works, not by keeping God's law or reaching certain standards of moral behavior, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we have standing with God and we're accepted by God. By grace, because it's the gift of God. He gives it freely. There's nothing we can do to contribute uh, to this grace and uh, to buy this grace. We can't buy it from him. We can't qualify for it. We don't have qualities about our our persons that make God think, well, I should be gracious, especially to him or her. It's all of grace. It's of God's sovereign grace. God sovereignly acts uh, to save. It's in Christ, of course, uh, because of who he is as the holy son of God. And because of what he's done for us in taking our place being our, a propitiatory sacrifice. So that through union with him, being united to him by faith, we can be saved because he is raised from the dead, because he is ascended into heaven, because he is 
the justified one. He is the true son. All of those, and many other benefits besides. Because he has received all of those things. He has all of those things. We get them as a gift. Through our union with Christ. It's all by, for our, in our part, it's all by faith. Which of course itself is a gift. But it's, it's impossible for us to contribute anything to his free gift of righteousness. So all we can do is, is hold out the hands to receive from the Lord Jesus Christ. And even in that action of holding out our hands, we need help with. Because we can't do it ourselves. We don't want to do it ourselves. And by God's grace, he invades our lives and he helps us lift up our heads to see Jesus. And to receive from him all that he has won for us. And all of this is that faith that we have. It is a spirit-worked faith. The Holy Spirit brings it to life. As we have become united to Christ in his death and resurrection. Well, we looked at one question uh, last week, uh, we noticed that there, are, uh, there were f- four questions, and we looked at one of them last, last week. Uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? And we thought about uh, the significance of that question. There are three more questions that Paul raises, and we're going to run through those this evening. Uh, in verse 33, who can bring uh, any charge? Who shall bring any charge against God's, God's elect? Or verse 34, Who is to condemn? Or verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So three further questions. And uh, as I said, this is what I want to uh, spend the time dwelling with you, uh, uh, thinking about with you this evening. I think these are questions that every Christian ought to have an answer to and ought to have embedded into our hearts. That we have the right answers to these things. So who, first, first question then. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And here we have uh, a legal setting, if you like. Uh, the picture here is, uh, you know, when the, for example, when the police arrest somebody, uh, when they've got the evidence that somebody's committed a crime, uh, they bring a charge. Uh, the police have got to charge you at some point with a crime, and you've got to then make a defense, and uh, you may end up in court. Or when the court meets, and you're brought into the dock, and the charges are read out, and the trial proceeds, uh, if you plead not guilty. So, and the question is, in this legal setting, who's going to bring a charge against you and against me? Paul is placing us, as it were, in God's courtroom. And of course, Left to ourselves, uh, every charge uh, can be, that can be leveled against us uh, would leave us in the most awful position. Uh, it's a, a place to dread being in, being in the courtroom of God before his judgment. Because we all have to face those charges that we have broken God's law. Even today you have broken God's law. I have no doubt about it. I don't know what you've done. And you don't know what I've done, but we've broken God's law today. We're sinners. 
And none of us have a leg to stand on. Paul says that in Romans 3.10. No one is righteous, no, not one. In 3.23, famous verse. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But what does he say about Christians, though? Well, firstly, he uses a very interesting word to describe them. He describes them as God's elect, God's chosen ones. And he's simply pointing out here that when it comes down to it, salvation is not about us choosing God. It's all about God choosing us. That God has, of his sovereign will and purpose, decided that he is going to save us. You and I, if you think back to the day before you were a Christian, if you can remember that far, uh, what were you doing in life? You were scrabbling around, trying to find meaning and purpose in life, weren't you? Trying to make sense of it. In a sense, your arms were flailing and your legs were up in the air and you were all over the place. You didn't know what you were doing. You're trying to find something, but you didn't know what you were doing. God came. God came into your life and rescued you. You didn't ask him. He seemed to come into your life uninvited. And he made his way in and he said, let me show you my grace, my kindness in my son, Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about my son. And you believed. And you saw it. You were changed. You were never the same again. And that's how God exercises his electing power. He chooses you and he invades your life and he comes in and he scoops you up and takes you away to be his. And so, you see, this word election is quite a contentious word in the Christian world. But it's never intended to be a contentious word. Because you know where Paul is is bringing it in. He's bringing it in in this chapter of assurance. And he's saying, Christians, believe with all your heart that God has chosen you. That he has elected you. And so it serves... uh, So one of my previous ministers used to put it this way. The doctrine of election is not a bomb to be dropped blow everybody up. It's not a banner to be waved and say we're this kind of Christian. But it's to be a bastion for the soul, all the bees. Not a bomb to be dropped, not a banner to be waved, but a bastion for the soul. To give us assurance that God has chosen us and saved us. That's the wonderful thing about being chosen of God. That God has, has his fatherly I on you. And he always has had his fatherly eye on you. Do you ever think back to the days before you were a Christian and you think, oh yeah, I can see that God was actually involved in these things in my life before I had any idea what was going on. I can say that. Maybe you can too. And when somebody comes with a charge against you, 
It's like the bully that comes in and wants to beat you up. Remember, I had a few of those in school. The bullies that would come and want to try and beat me up. And uh, it's like your dad comes out and he says, you lay a finger on my chosen child. And he deals with the bully. We'll come to that in a minute. So when Paul says, who shall bring the charge, charge against God elect, God's elect, his answer is a simple one. It is God who justifies. It is God who justified. How, just, justifies. How important it is for you and I to hear those words. It is God who justifies. I have not justified myself. I am not justified by any of you. It is God who justifies. We need to be reminded of those words again and again and again. Because remember what's happening. The person brings all the accusations against you all the time. You know, the little darts that come into your, your mind and say, you've sinned again, you've sinned again, you've sinned again. That's Satan coming in. And he plays with your conscience. Satan plays with your conscience and constantly reminds you of your past sins. And you, only, you know only too well that he's right. You have sinned. And what you in a sense, cannot be undone. And there's nothing you can do about it. But God has done something for you. He has done something about the consequences of that sin. It is God who justifies. How? Because he reckons you to you the marvelous righteousness of Christ. When you have that, there is nothing that can undo that verdict of God. He's justified you, and nothing could undo it. No accusation can undo it. You are just and righteous before God. All the charges, as it were, are thrown out of court. And we're free to go. Because God the Father has justified us. Isn't that a wonderful thing for us to remember? Uh, Every single day. It is God who justifies So that when I sin, yes, I confess it to the Lord. But I remember that I am justified and forgiven my sin. Not because I confess it. But because God is the one who justifies. The unchangeable verdict of God. Next question. Who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? So this is a slightly different question. uh, In verse 34. Who is to condemn? And the first question is about who brings the list of charges against you. This question is about who carries out the sentence for your sins. And what's Paul's answer? Well, he starts talking about Jesus. And he talks about three things that provide eternal safety uh, and protection from, from all accusations. He speaks about Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his intercession. Now, it's it's worth just pondering for a second, uh, pausing for a second, just thinking about those three things. Uh, I know that at the center of the gospel is the cross of Christ. And we're encouraged to preach the cross. And sometimes Paul only mentions the cross. 
But what you need to remember, what we need to remember is, it's not just the cross. There needs to be a resurrection. And here in this verse, there's something else. There needs to be an intercession for us. Death. It doesn't mention ascension here, but it mentions intercession for us. So he speaks about Christ's death. And that, that's the answer to all accusations that God brings. Uh, is for our God to direct everybody to the cross and say, this son of mine died in your place. Died, died in the place of my people. So the accusers have nothing to accuse with. Because all the penalty has been paid. Justice has been served. The wrath is exhausted. And you can say to the Christian, to the believer, you're not condemned. You're justified through Jesus Christ. So Jesus' death really matters. And then he mentions the the resurrection. That Jesus Christ now lives having won a great victory over death. And now that he lives, he brings certainty that the righteous judgment of God has been exhausted by the cross. If you, if you remember back to chapter 4, he says a, a strange thing that sometimes we can puzzle over. He says, he speaks about Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It doesn't sound right, does it? It sounds like his death is for our justification. But here he says our resurrection is for our justification. Now why? Well, interestingly, Jesus, when he was raised for the dead, he was no longer sin for us, was he? And there is a sense in which he was vindicated at his resurrection. You see? 1 Timothy 3. He was vindicated in the flesh. At the point of his resurrection, he was declared to be the son of God in power. No longer sin. Because he became sin for us. Justified. And because he is raised and justified we are justified and that resurrection has begun in the new life that comes into the heart we are justified through Jesus Christ so the resurrection death has been through the death and the resurrection is the guarantee of Jesus is the guarantee for every believer that he or she is justified you know, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, how would we ever know that it was another guy like the many thousands of others that the Romans put to death? But he rose, amazingly. And here's the third thing. He mentions this at the right hand of God. Now, this is the next step in this, the, the sequence of saving events. So death, resurrection, Intercession. Jesus intercedes for his people. Now, what, what does he mean by that? Now, I know that we often talk about intercession in the context of our praying. We, we talk about our 
interceding for people. And what we mean by that is when we come to prayer, we pray on behalf of someone else before God. We intercede for that person before God. We kind of represent them to God. Now, I think, while that is, that is intercession, I think it falls somewhat short of what is meant by Jesus' intercession. It's not just that Jesus is praying for us, and he is. <clears throat> his intercession, you see, is a, an aspect of his high priestly ministry. Now, where does this come from? This, well, Paul knows this from the Old Testament. He knows how priests intercede on behalf of the people. And what is meant by that intercession? Well, it's, it's that Jesus, having offered himself as a sacrifice on the altar, as it were, he then is, having taken up his life again, He then needs to enter into the Holy of Holies. And you know how the Old Testament priests, they would would then sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. And in a sense, Jesus is going in, having shed his blood. And it's that act that is the act of intercession. The All the benefits of salvation are procured by the Lord Jesus Christ. So, I hope you can see this, that it's not enough, it doesn't stop at the cross. There has to be these steps, there has to be a resurrection, there has to be entry into the Holy of Holies in the true temple of God. He in Christ who is the high priest in heaven. And so now we have all that we need for life and eternity. And, you know, this is what Isaiah speaks of. And, you know, the great servant song in Isaiah 53. Um, and, you know, you, you'll know that it speaks of the great suffering that is endured by the servant of the Lord. Isaiah 53. Uh, we all know many verses there. But if you come to the end of that chapter in Isaiah 53... Um, it says in verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, so this is the anguish of Jesus' soul, the suffering servant, his anguish he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge, uh, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities, so that the effectiveness of his suffering on the cross is there. And then he says in verse 12, Therefore, I will divide him him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet, he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. You see the intercession coming in? This death is an act of intercession. So now he's having made the offering. He makes intercession for the many. 
And this is what Paul is talking about here. When Jesus is, he says, is indeed interceding uh, for us. Do you see how important Christ's intercession is for us? That he is, he alone is able to receive his portion having suffered and then share portion with the many. Jesus procures for us the salvation that we, we need and he does so successfully and he shares it with his people. As it were, we are sh- he shares with us the spoils of victory. Marvelous spoils of victory. So when we think about our lives in all the mess of sin and failure that they entail and all of that is brought to light and maybe by circumstances, certain things come to light that we don't want to come to light. The picture for Christians in that situation is not of Satan accusing and seeking to have the Christian condemned and Jesus sitting on the throne with his head in his hands thinking, oh, he's done it again, she's done it again, she's failed, and uh, what a disaster, this is never going to work. You know, sometimes that's what we think he's thinking. (laughs) Rather, the picture is one of a reigning Lord Jesus Christ whose death and resurrection is the answer to all attempts to condemn and in his exalted role as prophet, priest, and king is supplying for you and for me the word that we need, the reconciliation that we need, the protection that we need so that we can experience the liberty and freedom of the children of God. And he does so without regret, without resentment at your failure. Rather, he does so with joy and anticipation, knowing that every step of the way you're going to stumble like a little child, but he's going to lift you up and dust you down and carry on with you. Because he intercedes for you. His intercession is a perpetual testimony in the courts of heaven. And that testimony is accepted by the Father. And it's a done deal. The intercession of Christ. Isn't that great to know? Great to know for Christians. Here's the last question. Who shall separate us therefore from the love of Christ? And notice how Paul reasons here. The question is who shall separate us from the the love of Christ. But he starts talking about the what, the things could cause a distance. He starts talking about circumstances. Uh, So verse 35. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Uh, Which is a kind of bucket list of, of all kinds of personal hard experiences that Christians can face in their lives and so, why, why is Paul saying who? Uh, why does he give a list like this when he's asking who is going to separate us? Well, I think it's when, when things get really tough. When circumstances get really tough. That temptation starts coming in loud and strong. You know, the voice of Satan gets louder and louder in our hearts. And in our ears. 
And he questions constantly, does God really love you? Does God, did God really say that? Did God really mean that? And we are, you know, we can be a little bit materialistic, can't we? Uh, and we can, we can listen to those voices. And we have this tendency to make uh, this kind of equation. When things are going well, when I'm on the up with my job, when I, my kids are doing well, when I have a nice car, a nice house, then I know Jesus loves me. But when things are going badly, when I face a hard illness, when I f- my family life is a mess, when I'm struggling to make ends meet, and so on and so on, then I begin to believe that Jesus Christ doesn't love me anymore. See, circumstances begin to shape how we think if we don't have clear in our minds what it is that Christ has done. And sadly, I think there are heretics in the world that call themselves Christian teachers and prophets who have that fancy car, who have that private jet and that TV station and all the hair and makeup (laughs) and will tell you or imply that you can be sure that Jesus loves you when you have your health, wealth and happiness. Not so, Paul. None of that has any bearing whatsoever on whether Jesus loves you. None of it. Not a single jot of it. Actually, he says adversity is the normal thing for the Christian life. And he shows that by quoting scripture. uh, In verse 36, he quotes from Psalm Psalm 44, verse 22. For your sake, we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is actually the norm for the Christian life. Yeah, to endure the kind of opposition that could, you know, it's, it's that kind of opposition that could leave your life hanging in the balance, even to that extent, is normal for the Christian. And I don't think this is just an Old Testament picture. It's Paul is, as he quotes Psalm 44, he's, he's quoting it to explain the current experience of New Testament Christians, New Testament Roman Christians. And actually it's in the midst of adversity that Paul says we are more than conquerors. They're not just survivors. Jesus was not just a survivor on the cross. He was a victorious, victorious conqueror. Through the cross and through him and in him, we too are conquerors in the midst of any difficult setting. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters. This is our Lord Jesus Christ, who has suffered for our sake, who has died, has risen, and now intercedes for us. And nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wonderful gospel and the wonderful work of Jesus Christ. Help us, we pray, to understand it and to be and to have it take root in our hearts and our faith strengthened in the midst of all our difficulties. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.